Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 15 of Sober Speak. And I am sitting here with my friend Dawn, D-A-W-N. She, uh, she is a female, not a male, obviously. Uh, but anyway, we're going to... Uh, I just want to start out by saying this episode is brought to you by Sean. Uh, Sean went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution Thank you, Sean, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. At SoberSpeak here, you will find podcasts of uh, people sharing their uh, recovery, much like they do in an AA speaker meeting. Uh, These men and women share their experience centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. My name is John M., I'm an alcoholic, and I will be the host of this episode. Consider this, if you will, your meeting between meetings. And I have asked Dawn to um, bring in uh, something that she thought was important to her to read uh, as we uh, began the uh, podcast today. So Dawn, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you read. You bet. This is out of our 12-step promises that life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. Great, Dawn. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And that's uh, um, especially uh, important to our community here uh, lately, and we'll dive into that a little bit. Um, we welcome all of your comments, and you can get in touch with us at SoberSpeak.com uh, or simply uh, send your feedback to feedback at SoberSpeak.com. Remember, SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization, their own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Please, oh, and I'm going to ask Don to read this last part of this here. Please remember, we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. So take what you want and leave the rest at the curb. That's right. Leave the rest at the curb. All right, so. Well, Don, I'm glad to have you here. I've been uh, looking forward to this uh, all week. Uh, we've known each other, uh, gosh, I, I would imagine for 10 years now or so. Right yeah, this area? summer will be 10 years since 10 I years. first came in right. to well, the trailer. Well, in fact, why don't we go ahead and start with that. What is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is July 20th, 2009. July 20th, so that'll be 10 years. Yeah, 10 years, I don't know why, you know, our, our friend Kimbo, uh, who you know, used to say everyone makes a big deal out of the zeros and the fives mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So this will be one of the zeros. Actually, this year, this summer will be my ninth year uh, sober. Okay, But gotcha. it's 10 years since I came into AA and was working on that. I got you. Completely get it. Um, so, so we've known each other for a while, but, uh, you know, uh, we've never... And this is the interesting part to me is that and why I started doing this, and that is... It's almost like you can know people for years and know bits and pieces of what they share in three minutes in a meeting, right. but you don't really know the whole story. I mean, unless you go to a speaker meeting, and I've actually never seen you speak at a speaker meeting, so this will be all fresh and new for me, which uh, I'm glad about. Um, let's talk a little bit on the front end of this. Um, both of us uh, had a, well, we have a friend who is dear to both of us. 
who um, passed away this week. And I'm going to go ahead and say his last name because he's not with us anymore. He's at the big meeting in the sky. Uh, his name was uh, George Clark. And uh, George was uh, oh, kind of a cornerstone for all of us here in the North Texas area. Totally. And um, did just so much service work, and he helped so many people through so many years in the program. Um, and uh, he was on a ladder this week doing his job. He was a construction. Yesterday, yeah. Yes, yeah, yesterday, seven in the morning, I guess, right? And uh, he was here in uh, right out, a suburb right outside of Dallas, which is where we live. And he fell backwards, I guess, mm-hmm. on the ladder. 25 feet up is what they said it was. And Stubborn as hell, not using any safety gear. Right, right. Like uh, there was a gentleman who was there with him said uh, George was old school, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in this particular case, old school didn't serve him well. But um, So I want you to kind of give your thoughts a little bit. I, I know you knew George. Um, and uh, I want you, and, and from that reading that you just kind of brought up there a moment ago, um, why don't you uh, kind of give an idea of how that dovetails into George and his life and how we're going to miss him and any sort of thoughts you may have about George here before we get started. Sure, yeah. George was definitely been a cornerstone for me since I came into the Frisco group specifically and um, just was always someone that made an effort to remember everyone's name. <sighs> I don't know if it was just the women, (laughs) but he definitely did make an effort. I was single when I came in to the program, and he would make an effort, and and it wasn't in a creepy way, right, Mm -hmm. to get to know the women and remember their names and let them know they were welcome. And, um, you know, there was a friend of mine last summer who, a single woman who was struggling and sharing a means about struggling about not having a relationship with her father, and I remember seeing him show up two weeks later and bring her... Uh, a kit for her car um, of jumper cables and a flashlight and stuff and say, I just want you to know, you know, if I was your dad, I'd make sure you had stuff like this. And just doing stuff like that for women, you know, in recovery that might not have a man in their life to take care of them, you know, that was always really cool. But about three years ago, July three years ago, um, was on his deathbed, right? Because he was suffering with he had had cirrhosis of the liver and hepatitis C which he didn't know most of his recovery he was sober 31 years most of his recovery he didn't know that he had because he didn't believe in going to the doctor and so (laughs) when his health became really poor and realized he had that it was too late to really do any treatment and and the last what was going to be the last few weeks of his life we all were around his bed every other night bringing meetings to him and he could not stand to be seen as weak like he hated the fact that he couldn't get out of bed and that people were seeing him look this weak um and then you know his last few days as they moved him to the hospital um the doctor said i've never seen anyone with this many visitors with this many people that love him, and he ended up moving him to the top of the um, donor list mm-hmm. because of that. Oh, wow. Um, just amazing how many people he touched, right? And to have so many hundreds of people there every day. And what are the chances of being moved to the top of the donor list? And then what are the chances of uh, a liver transplant being successful? Like, right. it's not super common that your body accepts another organ. Mm-hmm. And was 
completely recovered, right? And then, I don't know the exact time frame, a year or so later, his house burns to the ground. He's asleep in it. A neighbor slash angel comes to the door and wakes him up before he goes down in flames. Like He's had so many near-death experiences in the past three years in ways that he wouldn't have liked. And I really like how someone put it yesterday that he's probably up there laughing right now. I got to die on a ladder doing manly things, right? Um, going out his own way. Um, so... Right, I, and I'll be brief with this, but uh, you know my the my favorite George story is uh, I was over at uh, the church where he where he started the Shivering Denizens uh, here in uh, the area, um, and um, I, I was there helping to get another group, another recovery group, jump started at the time, and I saw him. <clears throat> And he knew I was uncomfortable about it. And I talked to him about it just briefly. And he came and he put his arms around me. He says, do you mind if I pray for you, John? And I said, no, George, not at all. And uh, we just kind of stood there on the balcony outside. He said a prayer for me. And it just kind of soothed everything inside me. And it just kind of calmed my soul. And... um, I'll always remember George for that, and uh, he's just a he's just a good man. So, anyway, well, I just wanted to make sure that we kind of uh, paid homage, or just at least mentioned that because it's been such a big deal in this particular community. Uh, God bless you, my friend George, wherever you are. Uh, like they said in the meeting yesterday, I'm sure he's up there eating pie because because he loved pie, and uh, uh, I'll look forward to seeing you at the big meeting in the skies someday. So, all right, so let's let's turn a corner here, Don, and um, talk a little bit about you. And and, and um, so, you know, like I said, I've known you for years, but I don't know. A lot about your story and uh so tell me where you came from where you grew up I, I mean you know just in brief kind of a thumbnail sketch and and we'll go from there yeah I was uh born in a real Italian family in Massachusetts but when I was seven we moved to Fort Worth with my dad's job transfer and just strong Italian roots and I'm the oldest of three girls and grew up in Tarrant County and we we didn't come on the side of 360 right those are the <laughs> Dallas people <laughs> Um, and ended up coming and moving to Frisco, um, Frisco McKinney area, because I started uh, dating a guy that was in recovery, ironically enough. So this was after high school or whatever? Yeah, this actually was in 2008. Yeah, okay. So, but yeah, growing up, just had a really normal, lovely childhood, you Mm -hmm. know? Family was real involved in the church, and my mom headed the Right to Life group for Tarrant County, and just... Everything was infused in the Catholic Church, and I went to Catholic high school, and um, once I I hit, I, I was like the straight-A student, always trying to grade papers for the teachers, and like, um, just always wanted to be the best and the good kid, until I hit about 15, and I just started not feeling comfortable with myself, and I... I don't know if it's the first time I drank, but the first time I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, Did the parents or the siblings drink much? Was everybody kind of... There was always a lot of alcohol around. Uh, those of you who have been raised in a Catholic environment yeah. might relate. Like, <laughs> my parents had all the priests over all the time at the kitchen table, and they drank all night. That's what they did. And I, I remember serving wine as a 13-year-old at the church events to everybody all night. 
But um, my mother didn't start drinking alcoholically till I was 27. So that was when I was an adult that her alcoholism turned. I do remember that they would go out and drink once or twice a month and he always carried her home because she was passed out. Okay. Um, so she could never control her drinking. But it's not like I grew up... So you said your mother alcoholism. started drinking alcoholic when you were 20... When you when were 27? 27, her alcoholism took a turn for the worst. Really? And she still... Yeah, drinks alcoholically. Okay. Um, and there's alcoholism all throughout my family. I know now my grandfather died of alcoholism. His mother died of alcoholism. It's on both sides. And just to kind of back up there, like 27 is kind of... and. and, and you know, I, most people that I meet in the program, right, started early and then, not not all, but most, right? So I'm wondering, like, when your mom started drinking at 27 alcoholically, was there something that precipitated that? I would, I, so she always exhibited the allergy, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like a daily thing or something that was causing major problems. Gotcha. Um, but it escalated throughout my 20s and they got divorced when I was 27. So that's when I remember it kind of going off the rails because gotcha. once they got divorced, yeah. I, you don't answer the phone after five because you know she's drunk. She's not going to remember what you talk about that type thing. Right. You know. Do you remember how that divorce affected you and how you felt about it at the time? I was pretty self-consumed at the time. Yeah. I was out of the house. I um I was um I got married the first time at twenty-seven and a lot of things happened at yeah, twenty-seven there. Yeah. So you got married right when your parents were getting divorced. You're right. Yeah, I never put that together. But yeah, yeah actually. And so, and so, well, tell me about that marriage. So how did, like... Uh, um, my first husband... That, that's not the guy who you were dating in recovery that came mm-hmm. over, right? But they have the same name. Oh, they do? They're both okay. Eric, yeah. <laughs> um, so my first husband, we dated for five years. It was a horrible relationship. Like nothing but intense fighting... Break up, get back together. I was full-blown psychotic. Like, oh, I found out you're sleeping with a girl at work. I call and have his electricity turned off. I go cut off all the arms to his shirts. I make flyers to hang up at all the grocery stores saying this guy cheats with his face on. Like, I was, like, not, yeah, someone I would have wanted to date. Pretty crazy. So we had a really (laughs) crazy relationship. How do you... Just back up there where I've never seen. Now that's one I've never seen. Uh, the, Psycho, right? So you full you, on psychotic. You created posters to hang up at the uh, flyers with flyers? his pictures on it, saying this: "Don't ever date this guy. He's a liar, cheater." And at the time, and where would you phones, post like when you used to walk into grocery stores? There was a big thumbtack um, <laughs> board, right, or a coffee shop. So I would go put them when you enter grocery stores and coffee shops all over the town we lived in, which was Bedford at the time. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, good stuff. Good times. It's crazy. That's why I love Silver Speak because I like vulnerability. I would follow him, borrow a car from a friend, swap cars, wear a baseball cap, and sit there and watch him to see how he's interacting with women. Do I think the way he hugged her, something's going on? Crazy, 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 crazy. (laughs) Okay. I was psycho my whole every relationship I was in until I got sober. Okay, so, for sure. So it just kind of back up a little bit. You, <laughs> but that's why I'm I, glad you're amused. You? I'm kind of disgusted. <laughs> that's why I love sober speak because see, like I sit in meetings with you all the time, but I would have no idea that you have this piece of your life, you know, because we just don't we don't go there. It's just 
I, I don't know. And I don't see how that would help the newcomer. <laughs> I completely get it. I completely get it. Um, okay, so... Uh, so okay. since we had such a terrible relationship yeah. after five years, um, we started going to church together, but he was singing at Fellowship Church in Grapevine, which is this huge mega church. Yeah. And when the pastor found out that one of his, people, everyone knows who you are if you sing there in the community because yeah. it's so big, yeah. right? So it's like you're a little star. Yeah. So when they found out we were living together... They said, you either need to get married or not live together anymore because that is totally against the church's morals, even though he wasn't on staff or anything, just volunteer. Right, right, right. So we got married. <laughs> right? So, okay. Um, and this is how old are you? 27? Is that the same? 27 years old. And this guy didn't drink like me at all. He would have one Guinness and nurse it the whole night. And we were always fighting about... I want to party. Why don't you want to party? Or I'd have neighbors over and want to stay up all night and he'd go to bed and I'd not. And it was uh, crazy. So the church was concerned about you living together, but not necessarily about your partying efforts, so to speak. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So, all right. So there you're 27, you get married. So I, when you said that's my first husband, I'm assuming that that did not last very long. How long did that last? Unfortunately, four months into the relationship, I decided I was in love with my next door neighbor because he drank with me all night and he was going through a divorce. I was nursing him through his divorce and my husband went to bed at nine. Boring, you know? <laughs> so I decided I was in love. So after six months of being married and, you know, almost six years of being together, I said, I'm leaving. I'm in love with someone else. And I left. And then after a few months... So I, the, but that was the neighbor. So, like, would you have to come back into the neighbor? I'm just curious. We were living in an apartment at the time. But, yeah, he was next door. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, awkward, slightly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I um, was raised with good Catholic guilt. I couldn't deal with the guilt of you get married forever. Yeah. And so I went back and said, okay, I changed my mind. I'm going to commit to this marriage. Okay. And he was like, awesome. And then a few months later, I'm like, oh, I'm just really not into it. So I went back to the, the guy. The neighbor. And I did this six times over the course of three years, which was incredibly, it ripped apart so many relationships, not just with each guy. My parents, like one of the times I broke up with my husband, um, he moved in with my parents because they couldn't believe my behavior. So they took him in and... With his parents, the the damage I did to my kids, to the neighbor's kids who I'd become close with. I mean, it was just nasty ripple effect. Yeah. Okay, so so when did that end up? When I was 30, whatever year that was. Um, So about three years. Yeah. So 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 that that was all going on there six eight months ten twelve months so so it looks like y'all just tried it for several times over that three years and then it just ended up going kaput eventually. Yeah. Um, okay, so now. So when I got divorced at thirty and I'm single for the first time in my life because I've I'd always had the next relationship before the last one ended. Yeah. Because I don't like to be right. alone. Right. Um. That's when at 30, I'd always drink alcoholically. I clearly remember. I just didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Like I went to stay, I was at Stephen F. Austin for my first semester of college and I, I, I was assigned a roommate. I didn't know. And where they just signed one. Right. And I remember going to her when we first moved in and saying, Hey, I'm going to keep beer in the fridge in the closet. I know we're not allowed to have alcohol in our rooms. <laughs> um, 
let me know if this isn't cool. And she was like, all right. And then when she turned me in two weeks later, I was livid. Why would she do that? Like, I gave her the... Like, I was so mad. But I always had she to... She turned you in, like, to the RA or something mm-hmm. like yeah. that? Yeah, I got in trouble. And she was gone that day. Like, but I got a room to myself, so I thought it was kind of cool, actually. Um, but I... I would have to drink a lot by myself before I went to go out. You yeah. know, friends were going out to go to happy hour and to go party. And I was drinking by myself four or five beers to go out, you know, just to feel comfortable to do that. And it was it was nasty when I was 19 as far as that's when blackout drinking really started. With yeah. Waking up and really not knowing where I right. was. Because um, yeah. that's when I started really playing with shots and... Goldschlager and all sorts of other stuff. But I just told myself, Goldschlager's the problem. (laughs) Right. Or liquor's the problem. I've got to stay to beer and wine. Um, But then, you know, I I just thought I liked being drunk way more than most people. I love to party. Yeah. Um, And that first time that I remember drinking at 15... I remember sitting in someone's house, their parents were out of town, and drinking a two-liter bottle of Purple Passion. Uh Uh-huh. And I spent... All night, vomiting, on the toilet. It's in my hair. Gross. Don't Pur- remember half the night. Purple passion. Uh, help me with it's, that. It tastes like Kool-Aid. Yeah. But it's ever clear and Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it's a mixture mm-hmm. of... Uh, okay. They gotcha. sell it in two liter bottles. Oh, do they? Oh, okay. They did. I don't know. Gotcha. It. <laughs> but it's a night of not remembering and vomiting and grossness. And I, the next day, remember thinking, that was so awesome. I can't wait to do it again. Right. Like, loved the feeling of right. being out of control and... Whatever. Um, So that continued through my 20s of a lot of partying uh, heavily and a lot of fighting with the people around me at how much I was partying. Uh, They just don't understand, do they? I know. (laughs) The first time I got arrested, I call it for suspicion of DWI because I was found not guilty. Uh, Even though I blew over the legal limit. Um, I was 23. Um but I was able to not get that charge on my record. Um, and then in my late 20s, my dad sat me down and said, you know, you're turning into your mom, which is the worst thing you could tell me at the time, you know, yeah. in relation to my drinking. And, you know, you've got to start controlling your drinking. And I was like, get off my back. I'm a grown-ass adult, you know. Um, and I get divorced at 30, and now I'm by myself, and it's full on the next three years were really bad um my sister lived with me for a while and i i would i would start drinking as soon as i got home i mean i'd usually start like four five six depending what time i started client happy hours Uh i was in a i'm in it sales so i was able to always schedule happy hours every day with clients or vendors or co-workers or it just was very convenient that it was a write-off um building relationships and so but i'd i'd always drink till 11 or so, 12, at home, just, mm-hmm. you know, a few bottles of wine. I became a real wino. Um, but then I, I'd, in a blackout, feel the need at midnight to run to Whataburger or Taco Bell. Oh, no. And I didn't ever remember that I did this until I got to, in my car the next morning to go to work, and there's wrappers, uh-huh. food wrappers in the car. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. But my sister sat me down once really, really worried about my drinking because she said, I heard the garage door open at 2 in the morning when you left, and I ran down to try to stop you because I knew that you had drank a ton all night and you should not be behind the wheel. She said, you know, half an hour or whatever later, I hear you pull back in and the garage door closed, and she was in bed upstairs thinking, oh, thank goodness she made it back, right? Mm -hmm. She goes, 
but I never heard you walk up the stairs. So I come down to check on you, and I had passed out in my car with the car running and the garage door closed. Just pulled in and passed out right there. And she's like, if I hadn't come down and heard that, you'd be dead right now. And I'm like, get off my ass. Like... Leave me alone. Right. Quit judging. It didn't happen, right? Quit you know? judging. <laughs> so um, I had a lot of people talking to me about my drinking for a while, mm-hmm. but I did not see any problem. Yeah. I just thought I liked being drunk more than most people. <laughs> you just had an affinity for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so, so, so now I guess... Uh, Take us into recovery. When, how did you, how did you uh, discover recovery? My oldest son um, was on a select soccer team, and his best friend on that team. And just like to back up, so when did the when did the sons come into? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that first semester in college, I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I was pregnant within three months. Gotcha. In well, with Stephen F. Austin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotcha. moved back home. Over Christmas break, mm-hmm. when I found out I was pregnant, and um, so I dated one guy throughout high school, and when we went to college, decided we just hook up and we were drunk. Right. So um, we weren't in a relationship at all. So I'd always wanted kids, and my dad agreed to be my Lamaze partner, and my parents said, you know, you can move back home, and we'll support you. This will be great. And they were just so excited that I wasn't going to terminate the pregnancy. So I had a kid. Yeah. And then um, got a different boyfriend quickly thereafter. And then... Were you drinking during the pregnancy? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. I didn't yeah, during my good. pregnancy. I think I smoked pot once. but right. um, And then shortly thereafter, having a baby, um, found myself pregnant again with a different boyfriend. Right. So now life was getting really difficult. I was going to give up this child for adoption. And then circumstances changed and ended up keeping him. But anyway, so I have, I have two sons that are 16 months apart. Yeah. Um, and so. Right. Okay. Um, so my son's best friend, he was 12 yeah. or so. Right. Um, his parents were both sober. And okay. they were we were always at their house every single Wednesday night in McKinney when the boys hung out and we went to practice together. And this couple always had... Alcoholics in and out of their doors, either living with them or crashing on their couch or meeting for step work. Always, even when they knew we were going to be there, just it was a revolving door of alcoholics and people in recovery. And she sat me down one day and said, read to me out of the book and said, can you relate to this? And I was like, "Mm, negative. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Do you remember what she read by any chance? It was about the actor. Yeah. Yeah, the story about the actor. And she came out of her closet one day. She's like, I got to show you something. And she brought out a second edition big book. She's like, if you promise to read this, I want to give this to you. And she was holding it like you would have held the original Bible. Right. Right? Ever written. And I was like, I don't know why that's that important to you, but I don't want any book that's that important to someone I'm going to pass, you know? Um, and now I really wish I could have that second edition right. book. That would be so amazing. So anyway, um, one of their friends rolled in one day mm-hmm. from one of the, a group in McKinney, and we just kind of hit it off and started talking, and he asked me out, and we started dating, and he's like, by the way, I'm, I'm sober. I'm in recovery. He'd only been sober four months at the time. He'd been going mm-hmm. in and out for a while. And... Um, and I thought, huh, it's kind of boring, but designated driver at all times would be super cool. So I decided to go out with him. <laughs> um, and at first, like the first few times we went out, I didn't drink the whole date. 
Yeah. Like the first time I'll never forget getting dropped off at my house going, oh my gosh, I didn't accidentally have sex with him. I didn't like accidentally say all this stuff I didn't want. You know what I mean? Like I just, we just had like a normal dinner and I'm getting dropped off and I remember everything that was talked about and that's kind of cool. Yeah. So then I went home and drank and by myself. And so I did that for a few weeks of not drinking when I was, went out with him and then drinking when I got home. Yeah. But then, you know, we start hanging out a lot. So he would go to a meetings every single night at 7.30. So I would go hang out at his place while he was at a meeting and drink a bottle of wine. And I'd be there when he got home. And I just put the bottle at the bottom of the trash can because then he won't notice, you know, that I just right. drank a bottle yes. in an hour. Um, <laughs> and before too long, he was drinking with me. So it got real ugly real quick, both of us drinking together. Yeah. But I had gone to a few meetings with them here and there, and one of our huge blow-ups, I went to counseling the next day, and my counselor I've had for a decade <laughs> said, would you consider going to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting tonight? And I was like, why? Because I'm thinking, I've never told her how I drink. Why would she suggest that? <laughs> and she said, I think you're an alcoholic. And so I went that night, and I went, I stayed for the meeting after. Mm. I went to two meetings that night, and um, that's how I ended up starting a company. Wow. So, so did you stay the first time you went in? Have you gone back yeah, out since? Yeah, so I was at a, gr- a group in Grapevine for the first month. Okay. And then I moved out here, and um, I've been at Frisco Group since... So that was in June of 2008. Okay. Since August 2008 or so. Wow. Okay, so let's go into recovery then. So I know you do a lot around the program, right? Uh, and, uh, and I'm... The reason I want you to talk about it is because I believe it's um, important and I believe it's good for people to know and I want them to know. Here's what I'm interested in really, right? There's going to be people listening to this who say, what's important? How do I stay sober? What are the the pillars, if you will, Mm -hmm. of staying sober in Alcoholics Anonymous? So can you share about that a little bit? Absolutely. (laughs) I love this program and meeting steps and service. It's the secret sauce. When we look at the circle and the triangle, Mm -hmm. um, as far as... So let's let's Mm -hmm. make sure we slow down there. You said, you just said, so, 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 I mean, there's some people who are familiar with this, some people are not, but you just said meeting, steps, and service, right? Being the secret sauce. You put them all together and they make for something magical. All right. So anyway, I just want to make three sides of the triangle and one side is working the steps. Mm -hmm. Uh, We go through the steps and that's where we find recovery as an alcoholic, right? right? And the other side is unity. And the way I find unity with other alcoholics and realize I'm not doing this alone is by going to meetings and get, and then the other side is service. And so there's something magic happens when I do all three because when I share my experience with another alcoholic and help them and stop thinking about myself all the time, I was told that the circle around the triangle represents feeling whole, this fourth dimension of existence. Mm-hmm. And it is really indescribable when you hit that fourth dimension of existence of how life feels to me when I'm working the steps every day, going to meetings at least every other day, and working with others and being of service that is unbelievable inside as to a wholeness I feel that I never knew that's what I was seeking. Very well put. Let's talk about that fourth. So there, and I know where you're getting the term, right? The fourth dimension of existence that comes from our big book, Alcoholics Mm -hmm. Anonymous. 
if there's somebody out there who has maybe not heard that term before, they may think, and wow, I was listening to that Dawn lady, and then she just went right off the rails, talking about the fourth dimension of existence. And so if you can, and I know you just said it's indescribable, and I'm about to ask you to describe it. Right. <laughs> um, talk then a little bit about what you mean by the fourth dimension of existence. And, and let me just throw a little of my own uh, experience here on the front end, because I remember when I... Um, uh, read for the first time in the book, it talked about divide, uh, developing this vital sixth sense. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what are they talking about, the vital sixth sense, right? This is this is kind of, is this wacky stuff? Is this far out stuff? Are they trying to get me to be some sort of cult or whatever the case may be? So talk about your experience with things like the fourth dimension of existence, uh, the, the vital sixth sense, and, and, and what that means to you from your perspective. So... When you talk about the vital sixth sense, to me, that's all about being connected with my intuition. Like when I, I always believed in God. I was raised heavily in the church. We were in the choir. We went to Catholic school. You know, we went to, we're heavy in the church, but actually getting connected and being able to have a conscious relationship with God and being able to, I believe now that God isn't up there in the sky. God's inside of me and God's inside of you and getting to hear God speak to me through other people mm-hmm. as well as through meditation, as well as through music, as well as through nature, right? Yeah. Like all these different ways. If I take time every single day to connect to God when I wake up, then I understand when my intuition's leading me somewhere or guiding me to make a decision versus me like, I don't know, is that in my head? Is that what I'm supposed to do? You know, like I I have a intuition connection because that's God in my gut now. So people can kind of put some, uh, uh, um, uh, how do I put this? How does this manifest itself? When you talk about actually taking time to connect with God and then you go through a decision-making process, can you give us some real life examples of how that has become manifest in your life and your relationship with God? Sure. So steps 10, 11, and 12 are an integral part of my every single day. Um, and for those who are not familiar with 10, 11, or yeah, 12, so, oh, sorry. So step 10 is step continue 10. to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11 is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. And then 12 is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. There's a lot of meat in there. Right. You could stop just about, I mean, you're going to have an entire hour after just half of one of those uh, steps right there. Right. But when you, so, so that's what I want the listeners to know, right? There are 10, 11, and 12. It's what we call the maintenance steps within Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when Dawn is talking there, she's saying, I practice 10, 11, and 12 every day. And uh, that's where the growth comes, right? right? And so when you talk about that, so go ahead and, and, and explain a little bit about that, how you practice that in your life. So in 10, paying attention all day to every time I get irritated, it happens a lot. Like, I don't understand when people have a hard time coming up with stuff to write about every day because people irritate me all the time. Like, um, and taking note of those on my phone, on my notepad, so that when I sit down to write and do my nightly inventory, I can remember, like, how 
things piss me off or irritate me or I'm being selfish and I know it. Um, but I also think it's important um, where it says in the 12 and 12 that we have like a ledger because um, it, it really only focuses in the big book on looking at where I'm selfish, self-seeking, resentful, and afraid. But in the 12 and 12, it talks about looking at the good and the bad, not beating ourselves up. So the journal I use, there's a column for the good stuff. Did I go to a meeting today? Did I call another alcoholic today? Did I do something kind and loving for my family that was out of the ordinary? Stuff like that. Yeah. And then the where really writing down, where was I selfish? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I afraid? And then... Um, and dishonest. And for those who, mm-hmm. once again, who are listening, who are wondering, where does that come from? The It's all throughout Alcoholics Anonymous. It's all throughout the big book, right? Where are we selfish, dishonest, resentful, and afraid? And it's just like a mantra that we're constantly telling, you know, uh, are repeating to ourselves. Of, Look at myself. And one, and one thing I just want to input here real quick is that I noticed that last night I was actually getting into a uh, uh, some emotional discomfort, I'll put it that way. Something had really rubbed me the wrong way. And I noticed myself processing it by saying, okay, as opposed to running away from this, right, and getting angry, let's lean into this a little. What What is the universe? What is God? What is... Um, uh, what is Alcoholics Anonymous? What is my intuition trying to teach me here? So let's look at where this is coming from and why it's affecting me in this way. So anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but so so we have 10, 11, and 12. I love about that 10. we're taught by going through step four that I have at some point in the past, if someone's bothered me, made a decision based on self that put me in a position to be hurt, right? So once I really understood that in my soul, took a, a year or two to go, whoa, every time someone bothers me, I've done something to put myself in a position to be hurt, whether it's my expectations I have of people to do certain things or wanting them to act a certain way or do things my way um, or judging them or talking about them, whatever it is, right? So once I really get that, it's powerful when I stop and look at every single day, right? What am I doing? And go talk to people if I've harmed them. Right. And it's, talk to others about the stuff that's coming up. Right. It sets you free. Totally. It sets you free. And spending time every single morning to connect with God. And I think everyone does that in their own way. I I have a journal where I answer the questions that I ask mm. in the book. What are my plans for the day? Do I have any motives that are selfish, self-seeking? Um, and But then I also... My every day starts with a gratitude list, and it's about 50 things that I'm grateful for today. Wow, do you write out 50 Absolutely. things every day? I love my gratitude journal. Um, every I'm impressed with that. I love it. I also make a list of my desires after I do that every morning and reflect on what I'm grateful for. What do I desire to come into my life? Mm-hmm. Um, who do I desire to be? I did not like who I was when I was drinking. I was not a faithful person. I was not an honest person. And I love today knowing that I am in a completely honest marriage. Like I tell my husband everything. You don't have to worry about <laughs> who I'm talking to. I don't I don't get some little side pleasure from flirting with someone anymore. I don't, you know, even innocent, you know what I mean? Like I seemingly innocent, do. whatever. Yeah. Um, I just love what that does. But... I I love meditation. I do a lot of guided meditations. Whether yeah, it's, you were talking about. I think you did that earlier this this, yeah, this morning, with right? Wayne Dyer. I spent about forty minutes doing an I am meditation. Right, right. I am. What I am. I am. It's it's. Oh, I, I am. am. Like ah, it's the God, okay. but it's it's saying over and over 
what am I? I am kind. I am loving. I am honest. You know, it's a, it's a powerful. Uh, it's on YouTube, but yeah. you do it along with them. It's yeah, cool. and I I have found a lot of things on YouTube as well. Yeah, a uh, lot. Which I mean, you know, you and 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 that's the whole point of this, right? You can. The job is, uh, my job is to seek, right? And if you seek, and if you're looking for it, if you're looking for ways to pray, if you're looking for ways to meditate, uh, if you're looking for ways to help others, if you're looking for ways to take inventory, it will be shown to you, mm-hmm. right? But that's the thing is, is that in my seat, I have to make sure that I'm seeking. And so well, tell me a little bit about the meditation and, and, and what it does for you and, and how it affects you and, and uh, why you like it so much. If I start every day with meditation, even if it's only 10 minutes, mm-hmm. um, I love Saturday and Sunday mornings because I get a full hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I do writing and meditating and both combined is usually 90 minutes. I love the weekends now <laughs> that, you know, I don't have little kids in sports or anything and not <laughs> run out the door. Um, but it's often shorter on days that I have to get to work, but I get just grounded with my higher power and I'm so much better for the day. I'm connected with my intuition. I'm more peaceful. I'm more kind. I remember what I want to, who I want to be right. for the day, right. right? Just one day at a time. Okay. Um, and it helps me so much. And I think it's so cool that it is a God of our own understanding. I have a lot of friends that their best way to connect in the morning is with scripture yeah. and the Bible. And I have friends that do it through mantras right. and chanting. And I get to, mine's changed a ton. Mm-hmm. over the past decade and I get to keep growing and lean into what I'm drawn to yeah. and it doesn't have to be about a religion it doesn't have to look anything like yours all yeah. that matters is that we're taking time upon awakening to connect with our higher power that's in a right. way that's powerful to each of us that's right you mentioned something there a little bit ago about a uh, uh, decision-making process and and I know that as the years have gone on uh, how I make you know, some are some are little decisions. You know, uh, but you know, even if I have a little decision, what seems to be little to somebody else, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason, in my heart, it's causing me some sort of discomfort, distress, anxiety. Basically, um, there are ways I have going through making a decision, right? So, uh, so I'm thinking about people out there who may be in the midst of trying to decide. Um, about, let's just say, about a a relationship that they're in. Or uh, they're trying to decide about a job that they're in and whether they should switch and whether they should stay where they are. Um, I'm thinking about people that may be, uh, you know, struggling with whether to to come into recovery or not or, you know, continue the way that they're Mm -hmm. living. Talk a little bit about how your decision-making process goes, not only for smaller decisions, but for larger decisions, and uh, discuss that a little bit. I used to be super like, I'm just going to do whatever makes me feel good right now, Mm -hmm. you know? And now, you know, I've been struggling career-wise for a little over a year. I don't have to go jump the gun and do what feels good at the moment. I, I cannot do anything right now. You know, until I feel like I've been given clarity in my gut, Mm -hmm. I don't do anything anymore. There you go. You know? Right. And, you know, uh, I'm just going to describe it. And like you said, clarity in my gut, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that with me, many times what happens is, uh, uh, and and I don't want to go all... 
uh, spiritual here on people, you know, and I'm not holier than thou, but when I come to a major decision, there's a point to where I get inside me to where usually it's a go one way or go the other. Uh, if I can get to that point, I can kind of go inside and see that one, one way gives me some peace yeah. and one way gives me some discomfort. And even though that way that gives me peace may cause discomfort going that sure. way, I'll know that that's the way that I need to go. It's just the next right move. It doesn't mean I have it all planned out, but I have peace about going that particular way. So, And for me, I visualize being in flow, like with the river. Am I in flow with... Things aren't supposed to be really hard, I don't believe, yeah. like every little decision. Yeah. If I'm going in flow, things feel right inside. Yeah, right? I call it going where the life is, right? And many times, though, that is something that's going to up- upset the apple cart. Uh, and what I mean by that is many times, you know, there's a particular group that's going mm-hmm. one way with particular things. Totally. And, you know, it seems, well, well the group's going that way. I, I, why am I being pulled to go this way, right? Am I, is there something wrong here? Is there right, something wrong right. with me, right? And, uh, you know, and, and, and I've seen this before to where you have, you're going through a major decision and you can go to 10 people. Mm-hmm. That you really trust. Yeah. You like their program or you like how they are in life. You like what, what, um, you like what sort of people they are and what they've become in their life. But you can get 10 different answers from 10 different people. And, uh, and then you go, then you would like, oh, wow, what do I do now? You know? And that's where you do have to go inside. And that's what's so cool about sponsoring people and helping people get sober is teaching them how to just connect with their higher power to find the answer within because I can't tell you if you're supposed to stay in your marriage or not. I'm not in your life and I haven't walked in your shoes. I can't tell you what you're supposed to do with your finances. How in the world would I know? But I can tell you how I've got a relationship with God and God can tell you what to do. And there's no pressure as a sponsor because I have to give you advice on your world's problems, (laughs) right? right. I have to remind you because I need someone to remind me. Have you prayed about it? Yeah. What did you find out in inventory when you sat down with God and dug into it and right. did your writing? Right. That's that's my job. Right? Talk about sponsorship there a little bit. So I, I know that you've sponsored uh, quite a few ladies throughout the years. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, I, what does it mean to you? What has it done for you? Uh, what have you learned throughout the process? Are you a different sponsor now than when you first started sponsoring people? I know in particular, I was like a stalker. Uh, I was too, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I, my, because I'm in sales, right? Mm. So my thing was closing the deal right away with newcomers. (laughs) And so when I'd meet a newcomer, I would say, okay, so you want to just go to coffee right now after the meeting and we can talk about when we're going to start going through the steps. It wasn't asking (laughs) You know, it wasn't wait for them to call or ask if I was sponsoring, right? I was all about closing the deal right at the beginning. Um, but that's not what it's like today at all. I currently sponsor 10 really awesome women. It's it's so cool. It's rare for me, but to have a group of women that I work with that all have a bond with one another, mm-hmm. we get together at least once a month for an accountability meeting and to share what we're doing in our program. So an accountability meeting, help me with that. What does that look like? What do you- yeah, it's, it's for us, it's 90 minutes of sitting in a circle and bringing food and lots of coffee. And we go around in a circle and say, okay, here's what I did this week and this month, how many meetings I went to, 
Uh-huh. The circle and the triangle. Yeah. What am I doing as a service commitment? Uh-huh. Who am I? Am I sponsoring others? And what am I doing actively in my steps right now? And we got to all hold each other accountable to stay active mm-hmm. in our program. And we get to see when people aren't are full of excuses, what happens? It's just a reminder of uh-huh. what life looks like um, when we don't do this stuff. Gotcha. Well, you know, the time has flown. Um, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is uh, important that you want to make sure that we cover before we end our time together here? I would just say that um, I've been real involved since I came to AA with always attending our monthly group conscience meeting, which is our mm-hmm. monthly business meeting that we have for Alcoholics Anonymous, and with always having a service commitment. I used to take meetings to the jail um, or whether it's chairing meetings. And so I feel like I've always like been plugged in mm-hmm. to uh, the heart of AA since I got sober. And, you know, I've, I've gone, done, done tradition studies and take my sponsees to the traditions, but I've also sat down with old timers and, and spent six months going through the concepts mm-hmm. and making sure I understand the service structure and that stuff. But something changed drastically a few years ago when my oldest son was really struggling with his alcoholism where it's a whole different world when I'm now walking into a meeting trying to make sure A's healthy and the doors are open and the chairs are set up because I want to make sure it's there for my kids and grandkids. It's totally different than because it was selfish before. I'm working with others and I'm being of service, so I'll stay sober, Right. right? And now it's... When you talk about my kids and when you mess with people's kids, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. And so this new passion um, that I have for, I have to make sure A is okay. I was super worried about the meeting at the trailer last night and nobody being there because everyone was getting together to be together for George's death. Right. You know, and what if there's a newcomer that shows up and there's no one at the trailer? And like, I'm constantly worried about that trailer. Is someone chairing the meeting? Is somebody going to be there to greet? And how do I make sure A is alive and well in every place I go? Because I have, I have a responsibility in my gut to make sure in a different way that it's healthy yeah. and there for my, my sons um, and grandkids, my, my family, you know? Right. I get that. And by the way, when Don references the trailer, for those of you who are not familiar with the trailer, uh, we have a, uh, it's where they always put alcoholics, right? In the trailers, in the basements. Uh, we have a trailer that we meet at uh, outside of uh, a church. And uh, the trailer has a creaky wood walking up to the trailer. It's got some pretty ugly green carpet. It's not just ugly, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's gross. <laughs> But I love it. Yeah, the ceilings are bowing in, uh, and uh, the walls are chipped. All that paint is chipped off the wall. But We all love our grocery But trailer. we love it, though, right? <laughs> it's where we find the God of our understanding. Is, yeah. Yeah, home is where the heart is. That's a very good way of putting that. Very nice. Okay, so I need to... I'm going to end it here with a, uh, a couple of... Uh, uh, some comments that we received from you guys. Uh, those of many of you wrote in to uh, feedback at soberspeak.com. And I just want to uh, read this here. Number one, one is from uh, Sean. He says, love the speakers in the format. Uh, please keep it up. Um, oh, no. And I'm not queued up here. But hold on just a second here, Don. I can make it there quick. And I got a couple more comments, and I just want to make sure that we read these here real quick uh, because we really appreciate it when you... I want to make this more of a, 
uh, a dialogue as time goes on. Uh, here's some other feedback. I said, uh, uh, John, as I travel quite a bit for a living, I can't always do a meeting on the road. This is most appreciated with a big capital M. Excellent. Loved Clay D, a fine example of AA. Uh, that's from Mark. Uh, and another comment that we had come in here is said, and this is from Doug, it says, Good evening. I listened to the podcast with Renee E. The sound quality is excellent. Excellent. Your interaction with the guests is perfect. You can tell that you have a sincere interest in your guests' stories. Uh, thank you for letting me know about the podcast. I'm sincere when stating that I truly enjoyed listening. Uh, thank you, Doug. So, and I just wanted to ask, if you don't mind me interrupting, yeah, uh, I've been listening to all the podcasts. I didn't know there was an area to leave. Comments? Yeah. Yeah. How would you, you do that? You, you can go to uh, www.com. And this is not, she's not setting me up. This was uh, real. I did not tell her to ask this. www.soberspeak.com. And either you click on the contact us button or you could just email directly to um, feedback at soberspeak.com. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in suggestions, comments, ideas, right? This is, this is evolving. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just completely winging it. You ask Dom, we're sitting here. I have kind of a, a makeshift studio. She thought it was a sewing table when we first came <laughs> in, right? I set up a little microphone here on the desk and I just bring in people uh, that I know and we just sit down and we have a little conversation. It's not real complicated. Um, but I thank you for your support in whatever form it comes, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends or just listening uh, in any form that you choose. So I would say keep coming back. It works if you work it. And I'm going to read here. In fact, I'm going to ask Dawn to read it. And she doesn't know this is coming up. This is the first time I've done this. Uh, start right there where it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God at the end. And then we'll close it up. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you till then. Like I said, keep coming back. It works if you work it.